0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Breakdown, the show by millennials for millennials breaking down, as the name would imply, the wide world of finance. To clarify a couple of things, I am in fact not Sasha. Sorry to disappoint. She continues to be missed and will hopefully be back in the host chair for the next episode. We also now have an email address, which you can reach us directly at if you have any thoughts on our episodes or any requests for future ones. Uh, We can be reached at podcasts at finpipe.com. And also, if you hear a voice fielding questions from the panel today that is not Jason and Stefan, don't be too alarmed. Uh, that is because in today's episode, we are joined by Andrew Bodner, a real estate broker in Toronto, who graciously offered his time and expertise to talk to us about the real estate market. And it was a really great conversation. Andrew offered insight on what to expect when looking for your first purchase. Uh, you know some of the things to consider about certain you know neighborhoods or, or future plans. Uh, and even broke down some of the costs as well that are associated with tra- these sorts of transactions and uh, and why they are the way that they are. Uh, I certainly thought it was a really productive conversation. I learned a lot, and uh, hopefully you guys do too. Take a listen. Oh All right, so we're here with Andrew Bodnar, a real estate broker with Remax Urban Toronto Realty. Uh, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, appreciate it. So, let's uh let's jump right in. I guess we're all a panel of millennials sitting around this mic and, you know, we live in Toronto and it's 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 basically a pipe dream for us to ever own a house. At least that's what we've been kind of told and that's the implication. Yeah. What would be your best advice to a young millennial who's in the workforce, maybe in their mid-20s, late-20s, early-30s, something like that, hoping to buy a house, sure. but think that task is, is so daunting, it's it's almost not possible? Uh, so, really good question. Uh, I know we've only got, what,
1: 30 minutes, 40 minutes. So I'll try my best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like an onion. We're going to peel this back. Yeah. But, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> hopefully, we won't be crying by yeah, the end. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> it, or you're crying yeah. already. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like at a, at a high level, most people have experience at some point, uh, you, you know, do you still live with your parents right now? Do you rent a place? You know, so some people have experience uh, uh, living on their own, um, having to find properties. They couldn't buy one, but they had to rent one, but they realized someone else owned it. So the idea was that, you know, if you're living in that one-bedroom condo, you have an idea of what you get for that condo. And, and it's pretty easy to, you know, go online or, or ask a realtor, how much is that place approximately, right? Um, but, you know, to kind of get down to the nuts and bolts of it, uh, the reality is in, in Toronto real estate, uh, the increasing uh, appreciation of prices is pushing people out of the market. So legitimately, uh, you know, as a, as a realtor, I buy and sell properties. And when I'm listing a property and selling it, one of the things I'm always considering is who my target market is, who can afford this house. And uh, we select price points based on who we're trying to reach. And, and sometimes we hit price points and the target market we thought was gonna be able to reach that house is actually not, they don't match. Maybe they did last year. Mm. You no, know, so, uh, you know, I brought some numbers with me. So to give you an idea right now, um, the average house price in, uh, in Toronto for 2019 January is uh, $820,000. Oh, Chump change, right? <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. Sorry, I didn't that. Right. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> but here, I'm going I'm to try to make you feel a little bit better, though, too. Um, these are GTA prices from Mississauga to Scarborough. So out of curiosity, does anybody in here want to live in Mississauga right now? Uh, I mean, uh, maybe in the maybe future. Perhaps, right right yeah. Yeah, right? All the far end of, you know, would you go all the way to the east end of Scarborough?
2: Um, I drive in every day from Whitby, <laughs> so that sounds delightful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I suppose
0: it's fantastic. relative. Yeah, I suppose. And it's I, felt-
2: you have to consider travel costs because the average price of a house in my neighborhood is about seven hundred. Sure. So to eight hundred. So if yeah. you're telling me it's the same cost to live in the city, maybe I should consider moving <laughs> to the of city. For sure. <laughs> Let's yeah. commute. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's yeah that factors in for me anyways.
1: So, so one of the first things I'll talk about is you talked about market size, right? Yeah. So to me, this general stat of 820 k it's a good general stat, but it might not be specific. So one of the things I talk about with a lot of people is micro markets. Uh, and if we're going to talk condos, so let's eliminate just to make the process easy, you know, detached houses, you know, that, that kind of sprawl. Um, but the idea is to say that, you know, if you want to be in a certain area and you look around, there might be three or four buildings in that neighborhood that you like, Right. But then if you were to go beyond that neighborhood, you're in a different neighborhood and there's different forces, right? Access to transit, uh, distance to your work, that kind of stuff. Even though you can still see it, you can see one building from the next, you know, and you might get a price discount. In one building, you'll notice that units go for, uh, you know, uh, $1,000 a square foot. Make it a number easy. So a 500 square foot place is 500,000. But, you know, the one in the other building went for 550. So they're selling for 1,050. So there's there's a, a per square foot difference valuation on you know on uh, the properties but they're within eye distance of each other mm. right so whether you want to live in one building you'll have to pay more or less for one or the other uh, so again so, so to me one of the first things I talk about with, with people is you know if they're considering a location is, is to really you know drill down on the area you want to be in uh, the type of property you see yourself in because then you'll you'll actually make your decision easy. You can eliminate the, the houses in Scarborough. You can eliminate comparing to condos and other parts of the city because they're not relevant. You really want to drill down on a micro market and then, you know, um, kind of bite that piece off that's a little bit smaller, right? And then you can kind of digest sale prices. You can digest uh, turnover of inventory, uh, that kind of stuff, you know.
3: Okay. So you talk about these different micro markets sure. and what sort of other factors then I guess should we be considering when looking to buy a house so you talk about location you talk about amenities like what are the things that we need to consider not only just the property itself but what it comes with
1: sure so um, and looking at the property is a common thing like when people call me they call me because they see a listing right mm-hmm. say hey i want to go see that place or I'm thinking about buying a place I've already been looking out of curiosity when was the last time you guys were on MLS Oh, maybe a year ago? Uh, kind of a year ago? ago? Yeah. Two years ago. Yeah. Two a while ago? Last
3: summer.
1: Okay. So, so, in some realms, people are on it daily. It's like something that's interesting, depending on, on where they are in their buying cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, one of the things to talk you know, financial health is a big thing. It's not terribly exciting to talk about. But um, one of the things I'll do before I look at places people get attracted to what they can see is we kind of figure out financially where we're at. Um, you know, what's our buying power? How much house can we afford? You know, it sounds like a typical statement, but to me, it's going to reduce a lot of that stress as to whether you're looking at a house that you can afford. You know, there's nothing worse to me uh, than you know being trusted to show someone four or five places and half the places I've shown them they can't afford, but they're the ones that they like. Been there. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so we kind of break down. So there's, um, there's some things we call like a, a debt equity ratio, which is, you know, how much you're going to spend on this place as a percentage of your total income. Right? Right. This is about you, right? You're going to live in this place. You need to afford it. Mm-hmm. So what someone else has or what someone else makes isn't really relevant, right? You want it to kind of fit you. So um, let's take a, a, you know, a salary of, let's say, $75,000, basically, right? If your debt equity ratio is about 30%, means that, you know, you're servicing your debt with about $25,000 of your overall income, okay? And that's something the banks like, and that's kind of a number you kind of want to use. Because if you're greater than 30% or 40, now you get up to 40 or 50%, your ability to, um, you know, anticipate change in the market, higher mortgage rates, uh, you know, I don't know, any you guys own cars?
0: Yes. Car? Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so we have yeah. car owners, right? Yes. So yeah, in the downtown market, right? Okay, Un- unexpected maintenance, right? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so you kind of want to have a bit of that buffer. So, right off the bat, um, you know, you want to be direct. Uh, you must say, "What's your income level? Where do you get your revenue from? How much is it per month? You know, uh, are you single, or are you with a partner, so you're pooling your income, right? Mm. Then, based on that, we can kind of see what we want to work with. Right, and from my position, knowing what your maximum amount is, it's the idea is to not spend as much as possible. It's to understand for you, if we were to reach that amount, that would be your your you know your highest level. But you'd hope to get the best house you possibly could for that amount. Right, right. Right. And a win for you would probably be the idea that I could get a house, or we could look at a house, and that you could purchase it, let's say under that amount, right, without maximizing totally maxing out your budget, saying I still got a place and I'm actually got some money left over. So to me, those are the real wins, and and you can only really do that if you get down to the nitty gritty of, of figuring out what your numbers are. You know, what do you spend entertaining yourself in a month? Uh, mm. Food. Uh, you know, what are the things you, you know? Do you guys have pets? Anybody have pets? I don't. I do not. Italian. pets. but but those are things in a lifestyle, and you know, again, it's a, it's kind of a high level view, but the idea is as a lifestyle. You know, where are you at? Are you traveling a lot right now? Right. You know, right. I meet a lot of uh, millennials uh, that you know love to travel, experience the world. They're in that position where they're at a school. Making a bit of money, don't have a ton of responsibilities. So the idea is, you know, you're very flexible with your time. Um, but you know, you go to South America for a month, you know, on a surf trip, or I had some friends go over to Thailand. Uh, these trips are eight, 10 fifteen thousand dollars, you know? Mm. Um, those are half of your down payment. Right. So it's kind of a lifestyle choice. You know, do you want to invest in that part of your life or do you want to change and say I'm gonna take those funds that I've normally spend on a life experience and and kind of
0: set my roots down on a property, right? Now do you have do you have a lot of millennial clients? Like do you like how like I mean not specific numbers, sure. but would you say like like a third of your clients, quarter of your cool. clients? Less way less than that? <laughs> <laughs> a twentieth of your clients. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He has what? one. Yeah, one
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <of> that, <right? laughs> yeah. no, no, for sure. So so you know, um I, I'm a marketer at heart, you know, and that's what a big part of my business is. So so you know, I was born in 79. At, at, at 39, at the age of 39, I'm kind of on the cusp of the generation. Right. You know, uh X and the uh, and the millennials. So uh, I grew up with with technology, but I still turn it off Sometimes I don't feel like, you know, I'm missing out if, if I'm just not constantly getting my up right? Very envious. Right? Um, yeah. And one of the things you realize in the real estate business is uh, you typically tend to associate with a sphere of influence or a network of people. And a lot of those things are driven by age groups, um, professions, uh, family, you know, orientation. So um, naturally, you know, most business people will do business uh, with people that are, uh around their age group right mm-hmm. know, around their lifestyle yeah, right there's that word again yeah, yeah. right so uh, so yeah I would have to say probably well over half really uh, yeah absolutely oh, wow. really you know well over half you've got that age group uh, you know young families you know people having their uh, having their first kids they're they're in that you know maybe high the upper end of the, the millennial range so mm. uh, you know maybe closer to the 79 born in the 80 80 low 80s. But maybe those who are uh, born in the late '80s are not in that position in their life, right? Right,
2: right. They're not trying to show off on Instagram. They're not trying to get all the travel (laughs) experiences under their belt. They're like ready to set down. They're ready, yeah, exactly. And a lot of people that I think our age are like scared of that, or Mm -hmm. just not like not in a position where that seems really attractive.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and so if I pose a question, you know, uh, I'm curious. So why would you want to buy a place at a like, What do you see the advantage? are there advantages to owning a house? Or what is it?
2: I want to have babies.
1: Okay. And so I want to have... <laughs> <She's> like, <"Hi." laughs> yes. All right. I, I want to have dead. babies
2: and I want them to, you know, be part of a neighborhood and a community. Okay. And, like, I know a lot of people that are my age that grew up in, like, downtown and, like, condos. and But the idea of having, like, a little detached home in a little neighborhood is so romantic to me. I don't know <laughs> if it's realistic, mm-hmm. but... I feel like it could be if I was like, you know, had a little bit of time to build up that bumper you're sort of talking about. Sure. Because I always thought it was, you know, save for the down payment. Mm-hmm. But as you're talking and you're talking about save for the what ifs, save for all mm-hmm. the fees, it seems like a lot more than just save for the down payment. So it's probably a few years in the future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: But, but you've got a vision, which is what I like. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> and, and that's what it takes. It kind of takes an overall idea. And I'll use the car as the analogy, you know. Um, uh Actually, a couple of things. So, first of all, we know there's a big change in how people uh, look at housing products and then they look at, you know. Large ticket items. I use cars as an example because it's kind of the second largest thing most people will buy, right? Mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, in in my age group, for a lot of people, let's say a little more rural outside of Toronto, you know, when you were 14 or 15, it was like you could not wait to get your license, oh, yeah. right? And you know, you had friends who got a car for their birthday, and that was a big thing, right? And, and and if you were driving on your own, it was independence and all that stuff that came with it, right? And then you kind of fast forward to today, and you've got car share programs abroad, right? You've got uh, better TTC programs, so on and so forth, and then you kind of look at like I'm you know um, 16 or 17 you say I really don't have a focus like it's not a priority for me right now to save and get a car I'm not doing that kind of stuff housing sort of has the same you know scenario where there was a time where you would settle down get your 30-year job start a family and you'd be you know 25 or whatever but you'd be well into that right now the reality is people want more life experiences they have more options Um, there's not such a great sense of ownership. Like, you know, take music as an example, right? Mm. Uh, I'm the old guy that's, you know, buying my, not buying CDs, but like I buy my music and then I just like to have it. I don't need to pay a membership. Okay.
2: That does not make you old. My (laughs) car is full of CDs. You get in my car, there's mixed CDs and I like it that way.
1: (laughs) So, so, you know, I think some people are holding on to some traditional ideas of what a house is or what it, what it could be to you. You know, I need to have that house to settle down and do those things. but then other times, I think people have a bit of trouble kind of wrapping around. Like you said, you might have a bit of wanderlust. You know, I've got mm. the, my sister loves to travel, so you know she's uh, she's got a small condo. She doesn't have a big house, but it's because she can lock the door and then travel abroad for months at a time. So to her, a house is a place to come back to, but it's mm. kind of not like her 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 stay at home place. She's mm. always doing something else, right? Um, so uh, so yeah, one of the first questions I ask is, you know, you want to buy a why would you want to buy a condo or what what's in it for you, right? The why question. So that's mm. that's a really important one.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I mean, on that on that topic of like sort of unconventional work or relative to the past, I mean, like it's sort of there was a you know, earlier you kind of like you'd work, you'd buy a house, you'd settle down, that kind of thing. But now people are either delaying that or, or foregoing it altogether. One thing I actually saw, and this is kind of a bit random, but one thing I saw on the uh, news the other day, because my mom had it on, I don't watch the news in case anyone was judging <laughs> me. Um, but it was it was about uh, older older uh, couples living in co housing mm. and like and sort of that becoming a a more I don't know popular way of managing, fi- especially in a city like Toronto where like expenses are so high sure. and and you have you have a lot of people that are living in houses that are worth like a lot of money, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, you know. I guess my question, at least sort of segueing from that, is if you have these sort of, we'll call them baby boomers, um, because that's what people call them, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why, like, so if a lot of those people have their main, let's say, retirement uh, investment equity in, like, a house, and yes. then you have a generation like us that are trying to buy those houses, yes. is there, do you see or forecast in the future there being a bit of a discrepancy between the purchasing ability of millennials because a lot of a lot of people who are in their like let's say late fifties, early sixties, who want to sell their house in Toronto or in the GTA and move outside of it exactly and retire and use right. that money to retire. But if if the people who are buying those houses, you know, can't afford those prices, yeah. do you do you see that affecting the market at all or
1: uh, sure, right. and, and you bring up a great point, which is you know perspectives. You know, we use the word buyers, buyers, and sellers very, very you know uh, quickly. It's in the same sentence. They are two completely separate viewpoints, right? Right. The what's the goal of the seller when he's selling his property to get the highest amount possible, right? Yeah. Okay. Someone's trying to buy a house. What are they trying to do? The Lowest yeah. amount possible. Right? <laughs> you you instantly have conflict, right? Right. right. But uh, it kind of works itself out. But one thing I want to mention about house prices and things like that, I think, um, just we were talking about the financial aspect, and, and just to kind of finish off the, the previous question, which was, you know, when when you're looking at the financial health aspect and what millennials kind of uh, should pay attention to or, or do is is also consider that it it um, it does it, it's a discipline. Uh, it's it can be stressful, but it's not any less stressful for anybody else going through the process. You're dealing with large amounts of money. Uh, They consider, you know, it's a significant, again, a lifestyle change. So I feel that sometimes when people go through the house buying process, just the, the stress itself of being, you know, kind of looking at themselves, thinking, where am I gonna be in five years? They can kind of get overwhelmed with that aspect. Mm. And to let you know that it's just as stressful for everyone. If you're trying to sell a property that you've been in for 30 years, you, know, you might think it's worth two million
0: bucks. Yeah. It
1: might only be worth actually one. Yeah. yeah it's still a million, it's, but it's yeah. half of what you thought it was. It's just as stressful for them. Right. So, you know, one of the things I've kind of found my niche in, in real estate is that a lot of times when I'm working with folks, it's just kind of, Making it simple, you know, and through the process, and not to oversimplify that we missed details. Right. But the idea that it shouldn't necessarily be painful or stressful. You know, so that's why I talk about doing your homework first, like doing your financial health aspect, because it's actually exciting. You say on a Saturday, I'm going to go look for a place. I know what I can afford. I'm not going to look every place that I'm looking at today. I could possibly buy Mm -hmm. because I can afford it. Mm -hmm. I just get to choose whether I like it or not.
2: That sounds so beautiful. Which is great. That would be amazing. This is my dream life.
1: (laughs) But it's really just a different perspective. And that's and I think that's important because, you know, uh, again, why are you buying? You know, why are you choosing to go towards ownership versus renting? That kind of thing. It, you should be fun, and there's nothing worse for me than to spend three or four months with, with you know, uh, clients to go through the process and for them to just dread every moment of it versus, you know, the idea of saying, hey, this is going to be a big evolution, in your life, you know, a big step. This is something you've wanted for a while. Mm. Um, and I'll talk, you know, about uh, appreciation rates versus saving rates. But the reality is, you know, if you're thinking about saving, like, realistically, how long are you planning on saving for? Two, three years. So now you start shopping for house with, you know three years of kind of pent-up excitement, hey, you'd hate for that to be negative. Right, right. right. You want it to be positive. So, um, you know, for, for millennials that are going through the process, finding it difficult, finding that there's a lot of things to know, uh, it's the same for everybody. It's very stressful. And that's why having a good, I'll call it real estate team, so it includes a good real estate, you know, salesperson or broker. Um, but, you know, having lawyers, uh, you know, available to you, real estate lawyers, uh, these people are, are, are a plethora of information um, about condos, about houses, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know home inspectors they'll, they'll take a phone call you know mm. uh, that kind of stuff so, so I just want to consider that you know it's not easy for everybody there aren't some people having a great time in real estate and everyone else is having a bad time it's, it is a stressful process you know
3: okay so you mentioned uh, three to four months yeah. people typically are looking in the market for that yeah. amount of time what would be is it really three to four months for someone is to that buy is that the average yeah What what sort of okay. time periods are we talking even how you brought up saving like for buying a home, how long would you expect your clients to have saved? And then how long are they actively looking in the market before buying? And at what point maybe they can't meet their dream home requirements? So at what point do you call it quits? you pause looking to buy you start saving again like what's sort of the cycle that you expect
1: um it's uh it it really is on a case-by-case individual basis but this is the part of the business that i find exciting so you know before i got into real estate which to me is the real estate uh, or the retail end of it i'm I'm dealing with the end user you're the person that was but before i was in uh, business to business you know um consulting and sales so i used to work with a new venture business so we used to work with purchasers and, and execs that were buying on behalf of a kind of an ideology for a business and it you know they they felt successful if they paid less for a product but then they went home but it wasn't this kind of intrinsic kind of value that it was theirs that they liked it right but uh, but i find when you know people find get their first house they're genuinely excited for themselves you know and that for me is, is a huge reward so um you know when i meet people again i i've <laughs> One of the things I kind of find fun about the process, and we just kind of had it here, right? We've got four people around, we're talking. Uh, The first question I asked was, "Does anybody own a home? right and the the first person to say no was also the first person with the most amount of real estate investment experience which was kind of interesting (laughs) right Right? so so my first question was do you own a home no so as a you know as a consultant in that aspect I might say well listen you need to know all these other things I won't ask any more probing questions but then after learning a little bit more about you I realized actually you've got quite a background of real estate stuff so so you know on that case you may have been saving already Maybe you were on MLS last night. So instead of me saying, I think a condo is going to suit you, you might turn around and say, I really like these neighborhoods. I found three that I really like. Just do you think they're a good price or not? You know, so they might ask me to kind of fill in a gap. Mm. And that's kind of where I see the real estate role aspect is we kind of can be a jack of all trades and, and, you know, bring a, a wealth of information on a variety of topics. But some people... You know, ask me to be just more strategic. They themselves in their jobs are in high positions. You know, engineers, doctors, lawyers—very, very very smart. You know, academic people. So they've done quite a bit of research, but they don't transact real estate every day, right? So they see a number like you know, uh, average selling price is up one point seven percent. And if you're you know in the financial markets and you say, "Oh, houses are going up," I I shouldn't buy one because I should buy when they're going right down. But I'm also telling you that one point seven percent represents about twenty-four thousand dollars on. 820 so that as a percentage is like less than 10% right so it means that 90% of your equation is good right you're thinking about making the evolution of buying into a house but the market's fluctuating that top 10% would you not buy a house on the grand scheme of things, it's, it's not necessarily a good way to approach it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. So, So they'll just ask me for a bit of perspective and say, like, is that a lot? Is that not? And those are kind of things where I don't need to, you know, help them figure out the size of the house they need. They can do that for themselves, but they just want to know that if they're going to pay that price for it, you know, am I close to where the market's at? Am I above market, below market, that kind of stuff, right? So, okay. so um, what, what
2: kind of questions? Should
3: someone ask when they're when they're getting um, engaged with like uh, with a, with an agent, mm-hmm. um,
0: just like for Sarah, for example. Um, she wants a place that she can fix up. Um,
2: right.
0: I love that if, I'm like, the one buying. <laughs> the <test. laughs> okay, like,
2: Congratulations, right. Sarah! So
0: that's I'm amazing. I'm so excited for myself. Housewarming <laughs> party when? <laughs> realistically, you still
1: want to have a place that's like going to be nice. But yes. if I, if, if she says I want a place that I can I can flip, like mm-hmm. what what would be the the right kind of lingo to, to say that? Like, what kind of questions should one realistically be asking? And like, what sort of things should we be expecting someone like you mm-hmm. to just like provide us in terms of, like information or? know-how on no. the okay. house. Okay. Thank you. So- Jay. No, another good point, and actually, it wasn't a specific question in your, you know, in the the list that I saw. But um, I want to talk about agency relationship, and again, it's kind of like it's as, it's as exciting as finance and mortgage rates. But but Ooh. it's oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> we're on the edge of
2: my yeah. seat over here.
1: <laughs> no, but, but but my goal really here is to is to kind of make you guys feel comfortable with the process. And the reality is is that as clients, you guys have a lot of control, right? And as a realtor, I'm a licensed realtor to provide real estate service, right? Um, But when I have a client, I have a duty of care to that client. They're what's called the principal in the relationship. However, most people would tell you, I don't feel like that. When I walk in, you know, my realtor's, I'm in his office. He tells me the places I need to go look at. I kind of feel like I'm not sure what to do. And then they tell me to sign on a dotted line. And if I sign, I feel like I'm going to buy something that I don't want. And and people commonly tell me the sense that they don't have, um, you know, They don't feel like they have control in the relationship. And I think one of the things important, and the real estate business needs to do a better job of this, is is explaining what agency relationship, you know, is. Um, And for me as a realtor, uh, you know, we'll be very uh, forthcoming and full disclosure, I mean, uh, I make my income off the commission sale price of a house, right? And... um, That's the way the industry works. There's no salary related, right? So um, our goal in the business from our perspective is to, you know, build up a a book of business with clients that buy and sell properties, right, with them. And then through that repeat business, um, we uh, sign what are called agency agreements. So I represent you in the purchase. And only because you've hired me as a representation, now uh, I'm entitled to the commission related to that sale. But if we don't have an agency relationship, if you don't hire me, I'm not entitled to that sale. So to give you a little bit of a different perspective, there's a lot of real estate agents that work for free. Okay, A lot of real estate agents that offer professional real estate service without realizing that they're doing so without a an actual agency relationship. You're not technically my client. So this comes down to asking questions, right? How do you ask questions? So asking questions about the market itself is, is good. I think, um, you know, Filtering your, your realtor, asking their experience. And that's where a lot of people come from a referral basis, right? Most people will say, like, who did you use to buy a house? Like, you know, there's 50,000 agents. What's a good one? You might search online, so forth and so on. So really the first questions you want to detail are actually of the, the realtor itself, how much business they do, the areas that they work in, that kind of stuff. It shouldn't take too long for that realtor to then start asking you questions. Simple things like, you know, how long have you been looking? For houses or shopping, it's kind of an entry level thing. Second question might be Are you working with a realtor? Right? And the idea is to say you can't have two agency relationships at the same time, you can't, you can't. have you should, okay, right, as a public, now. right? But listen, it the average person public doesn't know this and they're not expected to know it, right? And this is where I think, again, as professionals, we should do a better job. It's my job to filter it out and say, I shouldn't spend two weeks with you not knowing you don't have any or knowing that you're already working with another agent. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. And it has nothing to do with, you know, competing against the other agent and making more money, so on and so forth. It's just valuing your time and running your business in a way that um, is concise and clear for people to understand. So uh, in a scenario, when I first meet people, we do the introductory questions. Hey, how's it going? Have you done real estate before? Sure, I have. You know, uh, what are the areas you specialize in? And then I might say, hey, are you working with a realtor now? And you say, no, well, you know, uh, based on our conversation, uh, do you see me, you know, representing your best interests in a real estate transaction? And would you use me as your realtor? Once you cross that threshold, you've got an agency relationship you probably feel a little bit better about telling me some secrets, right? I and- <laughs> don't want to hear your secrets. Why, why, why do you really want to buy this? Place? How many people are going to be living in this place, right? Right? <laughs> like a dark I though. didn't know you were bre- breeding pets.
2: But- <laughs> I would expect yeah, pets. From- yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: That's what's in there. Um, but, um, but yeah, so the questions, you know, uh, again, around uh, uh, professional questions around uh, who do they work for, their, who's their real estate license, who they're registered with, uh, you know, personally, what kind of do they own a property? And ask things like that believe it or not, like you know getting representation by a realtor that hasn't bought a property before that might be a significant thing to consider right? right um so there's a real trust scenario that works on but but definitely having the confidence of a realtor that you're working with is key and i don't think enough people understand that they have power in that part of the relationship and i'll talk about something simple which is called the buyer representation agreement right which is really simple We weren't expected to, you know, cover it in today's conversation. But the idea is to say, if you want me to represent you as a buyer, right, I'm going to invest time in looking for listings, giving you the analytical details, so on and so forth. Um, As a professional, I'm held down to the advice that I'm giving you. That's the difference between doing something professionally and doing something as an amateur, right? Um, But at the same time, you know, you want to have some control over that relationship. So if we were to sign a buyer agreement and I would say, listen, if you want to hire me, you have to sign on the dotted line here, right? Most people might feel like, I just met this guy and I'm already signing something. What is it? But it's really just a trust agreement to say that we're going to work together and you're not going to work with another realtor so that, you know, my time is now constrained, right? So in that, on that basis, once that agreement is made, I have a duty of care now for privacy for you. Anything you tell me related to your real estate transaction, I have a duty of care to keep private. I can't go around sharing it with everyone, especially if I'm talking to a seller representative, another realtor, right? So you say, hey, Andrew, I kind of like that place you mentioned about, you know, trusting someone to champion your idea when you go in there. How do you do that? Once you've kind of gone through these evolutionary steps, right, but they should be instigated by the realtor and you create that professional relationship, then, um, you know, you feel confident, right? You have that trust with that person. And then as you're going through the buying process, you can ask those questions and, of course. You know, as a good realtor, if you don't have the questions, you certainly should, you know, find the resources to get those. Right. Right. Uh, so a bit of a long-winded question, but, but <laughs> you know. Uh, that's
2: okay. That's okay. I, I didn't realize that these relationships were so monogamous and intimate and there's well, lots it, I'm learning. Yeah. It, but even having these, like, documents in place, like, I'm just thinking the number of apartments that I was
3: seeing to rent a place, that mm-hmm. we had a real estate agent and I never signed one of these relationship right. agreements. Right. And I'm I am now wondering, like, did you have my business
2: in mind? Like we didn't yeah. have an official really rela- we weren't official. Sure. We didn't go official. We were yeah. keeping it on the low low. How do you yeah. know? And yeah. and that's right. kind of
1: the paradox. And I'll say, you know, some people uh kind of shy away from from again taking that step. Like, this is a, this can be for lack of a better term, kind of a, a stressful process. Something you're going through and things you weren't sure of and you're doing new things that you haven't done before. But as you take those little baby steps and you're making those bigger decisions, the idea of making a $800,000 decision actually isn't that tough once you've done all that homework and once you've done all the steps. But I think some people try to jump to the big decision right off the bat, right? Mm. They go from not really sure if they can afford a house to going to an open house and wondering, like, can I afford this $900,000 house? Mm. And there's so many things before then that you need to make little decisions about to kind
0: of exercise that muscle, right? And do that. Now, um, ignoring uh, ignoring uh, people who are buying property as an investment. Yes. How much should we consider the future value of the house when we're is that is that something we should consider at all or resale value? Yeah, like what what is what should we should that be a consideration when we're looking at houses or should we that should be like you know on the back burner and we should really focus on like. I don't know rooms or neighborhood or proximity to certain sure. amenities. Um, this is kind of more my my arena. So we're talking yes. with real numbers, right? <laughs> talking about <laughs> Re- rate
1: of return on investments. I'm into this Perfect. stuff. Um, so so again, you know, why are you buying this place and and before you get in um, when are you planning on getting out? And I, and I can sometimes treat buying a house like buying stocks. And there's some basic rules, rules of thumb. And one of the things you do you know, when you buy a, a stock on the stock market is you know, you're considering what the valuation is now, but you're considering what the valuation is going to be. And you're kind of setting yourself a ceiling to say, listen, if it reaches that price, I'm selling. Right? Now, a lot of people, what they'll do is it'll get up there and then they'll say, oh, maybe I'll just hang on a little bit longer. And they lose the discipline. They set the ceiling, but then they don't exercise it. And then the market might come down and, of course, you know, mm. give or take. Um, houses can kind of be the same scenario. So when it comes to resale prices, the idea is to say, as an investor, is resale price you know, one of your priorities? For sure. You know, you're going to have your top five mm-hmm. things of, uh, that are uh, important. That's going to be one or two. Because the point of your investment is to get the return, right? right? right. Uh, if you're a family of five and you you physically cannot live in your condo anymore and you need to find a space for your family, but your uh you know for your immediate family, but then you have other extended family in the area, so you need to move out of your current place, but you can't go too far. Like you're not going to go to another province. You're just going to go a couple blocks, whatever. Um, is resale value your, you know, number one priority? Not really. You're looking at the size of the property. You're looking at so on and so forth. So it's a consideration, but I, I always evaluate it, you know, as an individual. Some for for investors, it's really important. So for us to speak the same language, I want to focus on the return on investment. If I'm constantly harping about return on investment for a family that doesn't plan on moving for 20 years, they're not going to realize their return on investment for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So there's no point in kind of you know clogging the conversation with it up down.
3: I'm, sure I'm going to ask the director if we still have time for another question. <laughs>
1: uh, you know what? I, I did see one on here that I thought was interesting. Let's talk uh, Let's talk sure. about uh, closing fees, lawyers. This is, again, another really misnomer, all right? Mm. So people get into the real estate, they look at the house prices, they go, and then they go, oh, I, I already didn't have enough money for a down payment, and I heard I have to pay even more for my lawyers' fees, Okay. So like a professional realtor, lawyers are professionals as well. You hire them for their expertise and their service, and there's a security in hiring them because if they do anything wrong, obviously, you can go back to them and sue them. There's accountability. There's yeah. accountability there, right? So that's, that's the idea. Um, there's a difference between lawyers' fees and your closing costs. Okay, so what you're going to do is you're let's let's take that five hundred thousand dollar property. You buy that five hundred thousand dollar property. Now you need to close it. So your realtor's helped you find it. He's helped you with the agreement of purchase and sale. You've provided your deposit, so on and so forth. But now at this point, it's the realtor's turn to hand it over to the lawyer, who's going to de- you know, deal with the, the deeds and titles, all the, the technical stuff, legalese stuff. Okay. Well, so their time is valuable, and they're going to charge you a rate. Real estate transactions are uh, pretty simple, so they'll just charge you typically a flat rate. I'll say eight hundred to fifteen hundred dollars, depending on there. But people, you know, get bills for eight thousand dollars their closing fees. They say my, my lawyer cost me eight grand. It's not really how it works. So your five hundred thousand dollar apartment has land transfer tax, right? Yes. You don't pay that to your lawyer, you pay it to the city, right? Right. At one percent that's about five grand, right? Mm-hmm. We also have a beautiful provincial sales tax as well, which is also one percent. Mm. There's another five grand. There's ten thousand dollars. we, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> scary. That's right. It is. So
2: it's not really the lawyer that and is that's charging right. all that. That's money.
1: That's right. In. So that's why it's the
2: government. That's why. Yeah. So, so
1: financially, you want to do your homework to make sure you've got these things under your radar that you're you're paying attention that these are going to be coming up. But it's it's again it's the the emotion and the stress that's around it. It's saying ah, you know, my lawyer is soaking me for another fifteen thousand dollars after I just bought this house, and what he's actually doing is he's doing Favor, he's registering your title for you, and the city charges him four hundred dollars for the registration fee to push the paper. He takes that four hundred bucks and he passes it on to you. So it's fifteen hundred dollars for his time plus four hundred dollars for the registration of the title fee plus the five grand for the LTT, and he produces something called statement of adjustments. Mm. Okay, and the statement of adjustments is kind of that that uh, cooling period after your your you gone through your agreement of purchase and sale and you're signing it's your final statement to adjust everything to make sure that you're paying everything out accordingly all your land transfer taxes uh, taxes and arrears on the property so on and so forth so yes it can be substantial you want to be prepared for that but it's to understand that you know the lawyer is charging for his lawyer's fees um, and it's a nominal amount compared to the actual amount the other things you're paying for are things that you're responsible for now as a homeowner
3: Can you like boil that down to a percentage of the home price? Or are these, like, is there any way to anticipate how much that will actually be based on the value of the home you're purchasing?
1: Absolutely. So, one of the best ways to do that is, you know, get friendly with a real estate lawyer. So, while you're in the process of looking for a house, you may want to put some feelers out there again. uh, Did you use a real estate lawyer? Do you know a real estate lawyer? Can we have a conversation? I'm thinking about buying a house for 500 grand, right? What would that cost me to close it? and uh, they can give you uh, they can give you that that kind of detail but i'll say the land transfer tax both things you can find online the percentages okay. those are going to be your largest percentage and you can kind of do that math on your own
0: okay. very cool
3: good yeah.
0: to know all right i think that's probably a good place to end it <laughs>
1: <laughs> no i had a
0: lot of fun you can see there's there's lots to talk about i like doing it so no that was that was great andrew thank you very much for joining us today hey. i appreciate it great and that was Andrew Bodner. Uh, really great discussion. Hope that you uh, took something out of it. I, for sure feel a little bit better about the prospects of owning a home certainly it's still far off in the distance but it's it's a little less of a pipe dream than it probably was before this uh before we we had this conversation uh if you'd like to learn more reach out to andrew directly you can uh, you can find him at www.andrewbodner.ca and of course send us an email at podcasts at finpipe.com if you have any feedback on this episode or any of our previous ones Uh, you want to request a topic for a future episode, or you just feel like chatting, we're here to talk. And be sure to visit finpipe.com for all of your financial education needs. Thanks for listening.